Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. You wouldn't have to read much to come to the conclusion that Canadians are a bunch of haters. We are bigoted, racist, and intolerant. Forget the notion that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is an expression of what good humans we've all become. In fact, you'd be tempted to think that it was brought in to force us to respect each other at least once and for all. To put things in context, Kevin P. Anderson has focused his mind and pen on how Canadians turned on Catholicism. His book is entitled, quote, Not Quite Us, Anti-Catholic Thought in English Canada Since 1900, and it is published by McGill-Queens University Press. It's part of the excellent series at McGill-Queens on the history of religion that was started 30 years ago by George Rollick and has now produced almost 120 books. Kevin Anderson teaches history at the University of Calgary and at Mount Royal University. We reached him by phone at his office in Calgary. Kevin, welcome to the mic. Thank you so much. Now, of course, I'm exaggerating in my opening comments, Kevin, but I have to say I was really surprised by what I read in your book. Uh, your, your research carried you far and wide, and it seems to me that there was no shortage of anti-Catholic thought in English Canada during the 20th century. How do you explain this phenomenon? I think many people would agree with you and would be surprised. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, every time I give a presentation or talk about my work, people express surprise and then almost immediately follow it up with a personal story they have to tell, uh, usually about an older relative or if they're an older person, their experiences as a young person uh, with anti-Catholicism, either as a victim of or do, or carrying it out without even thinking. Uh so I think to explain this, uh, I think anti-Catholicism served or even serves several purposes. It explained and organized the contemporary world in whatever era we're talking about, in, our, in my case, most of the 20th century. It was a world that had easily identifiable good guys and bad guys. Uh, in this world, the church was bad uh, and Catholicism was bad. It stood against progress. It was anti-individualism. It was authoritarian and it created subjects that perhaps most importantly could not, quote, think for themselves. Uh, in this sort of narrative, Protestantism was viewed as mostly good, even if you weren't particularly religious. It allowed for liberty, individual thought, and eventually even secularism to flourish. I think anti-Catholicism also provided historical continuity, especially in, the, in an Anglo-Protestant context like much of English Canada was for much of the 20th century. Uh, Catholicism and the Catholic Church were not just the bad guys now. But they had been the bad guys since at least the Reformation. Hmm. Uh, and in some formulations, depending on your perspective, were the bad guys since the church, quote, distorted uh, the original simple message of Christ that the Reformation restored. And to add to that, Britain's enemies had been traditionally Catholic in this formulation, France, whether it's Spain, whether it's Ireland. Uh, so being anti-Catholic and Canadian uh, meant participating uh, in this very British tradition. So when you write, when you write, when you entitle your book, Not Quite Us, mm -hmm. you're talking about how, well, you know, you're sharing the territory with us Protestants, but you're not actually fitting into the idea of a Canada that we envision. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the re one of the reasons I, I use that title, well, number one, my wife came up with it, uh, <laughs> but uh, is that unlike... Unlike some other some groups in Canada that have been, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, discriminated against, uh, and we, we, we won't go through all of them, there's so many, mm. uh, Catholics often were, were undoubtedly Christian, 
uh, and undoubtedly part of this Christian community, except for a few extremists who reject Catholicism even being Christian. Uh, so they, they fit into a lot of the same sort of European boxes uh, that Anglo-Protestants put themselves in, um, but they just didn't quite fit into exactly what was expected uh, because of these sort of seemingly, to some people, grotesque traditions of Catholicism or the authoritarianism of the Church. You you provide a great chart in your book um, that actually details the portion of, or the proportion of Catholics in Canadian society throughout the 20th century. And I'd say it averages out over, over 40%. This is not a small group, Catholics no. in Canada. It's a, it's a, and it's hardly a defenseless group. Uh, why would anybody take on such a, a large portion of the population? Uh, yes, I mean, I think that in a funny way, that is why uh, you go after uh, Catholicism, is because they are such a significant component of the country. Um, they're viewed as a threat uh, to the future of democracy in Canada because they made up such a massive part of the population. Um, this is extremely significant. It differentiates Canada from other, you know, so-called Anglosphere countries or uh, um, uh, imperial countries in the British Empire because our Catholic population has always been large, uh, mostly due to Quebec, yes. uh, but also due to the arrival of famine Irish, of Scottish Catholics, and then in the late 19th century, with the, the uh, arrivals from Europe, and then and now, Catholics from the Philippines, yeah. all over the world. Yes. Um, so I think it's, it is in a reflection of the fact that it's a powerful group. And I think the very existence and, of, and the widespreadness, for lack of a better term, of anti-Catholicism demonstrates quite well um, the power imbalance, despite the demographics between, you know, what Hugh McClendon famously called the two solitudes, mm. or of the various Catholic immigrant groups in, in the country. Yes, the church was an important institution in Canadian society. And yes, many provinces had, and still some do, legally protected educational rights uh, for Catholics. That's right. Yet, yeah. Anglo-Protestant Canadians, I, cont I contest, could publicly attack the church and essentially face no consequences. Mm. Uh, in fact, they would often be praised uh, for attacking the ultimate, in their, their minds, historical manifest, manifestation of intolerance. Uh, so for many Anglo-Protestants, the spread of the church had to be stopped at all costs. Uh, so it was worth going after a relatively large institution that had power. Mm. Let, let's start with the roots of all this. You, you don't talk about it in the book, but I'm really no. curious. Tell me about the last 30 years of the 19th century and the rise of the Protestant Protective Association. Yeah, the last 30 years, I mean, really from the uh, Red River Resistance, Red River Rebellion on, uh, is is extremely uh, tense. Uh, the sectarian tensions are at an at ultimate high. Um, this continues into World War One, as you've profiled in your excellent book on 1917. Mm -hmm. Um but I'd say that, uh, you know, the hanging of, of Louis Riel, the arrival of, of new, newer Catholic immigrants, the um, increased power or the seeming increased power of Quebec at a federal level as, a as being blamed for, let's say, the lack of success of Confederation. There was a, a worldwide recession at that time in the, from the 1870s to the 1890s. The election in 1896 of a Catholic prime minister, Louis uh, Wilfrid Laurier, yes. but also 
the coming to power of a Catholic prime minister in 1892, John Thompson, um, after MacDonald died, both of these were viewed as a threat to, I guess you could call it the Protestant ascendancy or Protestant hegemony in Canada. Uh, And these, I think, especially John Thompson's coming to power in 1892 leads to the rise of, as you called it, the Protestant Protective Association, which runs candidates in the uh, Ontario election and win in Southern Ontario, especially. Dalton McCarthy, isn't it? Dalton McCarthy is not technically part of the Protestant Protective Association. I stand corrected. Okay. But he is certainly a fellow traveler, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. And Dalton McCarthy is a very successful, um, I think we could call him uh, nativist, uh, anti-Catholic. You know, he refers to French Canadians as a bastard nationality. Um, and he's a rabble rouser, rogue Tory who splits from the party and forms his own group um, based largely on a unif- unitary, and this is a theme that continues in my book, a unitary definition of Canada as an Anglophone Protestant country with no special status or special treatment of anyone. Mm. This is what, and this is embodied in the slogan, equal rights for all, special privileges for none, right. which continues into the 20th century and continues into anti-Catholicism. It sounds like a great slogan, uh, but it's used for, uh, I would argue, discriminatory purposes. Now, this anti-Catholicism that you document uh, is remarkably wide-ranging. I was really struck by the people that you parade in this book. On the left are people like J.S. Woodsworth, Eugene Forsey, and Frank Scott. These are progressive people. What was their take on Catholicism? Yes, uh, so I purposely wanted to bring together uh, an eclectic group uh, of figures and examples to show how complicated anti-Catholicism is. It's not just... um, hating Catholics or being mean to Catholics or, um, you know, not agreeing with the church. Mm. Um, I think all of these figures are sharing a pre-existing anti-Catholic tradition that can be dated back centuries, let's say Luther even to the Reformation. Uh, And all of them bought into a very familiar narrative um, that the Catholic church was a force of darkness and superstition of obscurantism, and that human enlightenment and freedom was only made possible by certain largely Protestant heroes standing against it. So they would have all shared the certain stories about the martyrs of Bloody Mary, the brutality of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, the Inquisition, and all sorts of horrible things. I think that as people got older or more politically aware or involved, they started grafting their own Uh, they started grafting these traditions onto their own lived experiences. So often progressive figures in Canada, uh, like J.S. Woodsworth or Eugene Forsey, uh, would, they resented the socially conservative nature uh, of the church. Now, this is complicated because this is not really a conspiracy theory. Um, (laughs) As we know now, the church has been a force for social conservatism in some contexts. Uh, And at this time, let's say in the 1930s, which is extremely controversial era of um, the Catholic Church's involvement in international politics, the Church did support uh, groups like um, Franco Spain eventually. Yes. Uh, it, did, it did help Mussolini legitimize his regime to some extent. Yes. So I think progressives tended to see the Church as one of the many tools of elite power, uh, as perhaps bamboozling its followers uh, and keeping them in ignorance. And Canadians were not unique. There's that anti-American. There's an anti-Catholic strain in American politics, also. I mean, the kind of politics, the the anti-Catholicism of the Ku Klux Klan, the 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 anti-Catholicism that stood in the way of Al Smith's rise to power. 
uh, in New York in the 1920s. Uh, I mean, how would you compare Canadian anti-Catholicism with American anti-Catholicism? Yeah, uh, absolutely. All of those things are true. Um, I don't think, I think sometimes uh, historians, uh, we can get bogged down in sort of ranking how discriminatory uh, things are uh, and which countries are, are better at not being discriminatory. Uh, so I don't think ranking anti-Catholicism is, is necessarily possible. I would say that um, in the 20th century, uh, what ends up happening is it's largely about national unity uh, in compared to the United States. Perhaps it is in the, I don't, I'm not an expert in American anti-Catholicism, um, but in Canada, it tends to be about um, the, the ability of the country to function and to move into the future as a real country. And we all know this, this Canadian anxiety mm. about are we a real country? What do we even mean? What do we stand for? Well, at this time in the um, in, in the debates that I'm looking at, a lot of it was, well, we should be this and we're not because of the Catholic Church, because it's uh, preventing us from developing uh, as a real country, it's standing in the way and it's trying to turn us back to an, uh, a bad era. That's how I would compare the two, uh, mostly. Now, I mean, you certainly make a case in terms of the progressives, those on the left who would see the church as standing for uh, social conservatism, but you also identify people on the right, people like Charlotte Witten, who had I mean, to give uh, Madame Witten her, her due, I mean, had, had played a, fun, uh, a fundamental role in shaping social work in Canada. She was anti-Catholic. You mentioned George Drew, the premier of Ontario and eventually the leader of the PC party in 1949 and 1953. I mean, these are influential people on the right who are anti-Catholic. I mean, they, they're, they're both left and right. Absolutely. Um, so conservative... Uh, conservatives, you know, to lump them all together, I suppose, yeah. uh, often uh, fell into, let's say, two camps, at least in the earlier stages of what I'm looking at. Um, there were theological conservatives uh, or fundamentalists uh, who saw, and then Witten, neither Witten nor Drew fall into that camp at all, but who saw in Catholicism uh, Antichrist that was promised in Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, this tradition does decline in Canada a little bit by the 1960s. It does remain. I actually just did a presentation on it um, remaining into the 1980s when Pope uh, John Paul II came to visit Canada in yes. 1984, the yes. first time a pope had ever come to Canada. Yes. Um, but more common uh, was uh, the sort of British Canadian nationalism or the imperialist Canadian nationalism mm. on the right, who saw Catholicism as antithetical to the integrity of Britishness. Uh, they saw they tended to see Catholicism as rejecting the values of Britishness, uh, such as fair play, individual responsibility, mm. uh, parliamentary democracy, and also perhaps even uh, leading to a dual loyalty of Catholics, that they weren't totally loyal to the monarchy. Instead, they were loyal to the Pope in Rome, the dark man in the Vatican, as right. some people called him. Right. Uh, and this was a, a great threat to this the more conservative Canadians, as was, I think, uh, the fact that the Catholic Church is an inherently internationalist organization. Um, it is not necessarily, does not necessarily pay attention as closely to these borders, these national borders that those on the right really value. Uh, and it really challenges this kind of Westphalian nation state system 
uh, in their minds, uh, and it's a threat. This is a similar threat that people view of uh, the communi- uh, communist movement indeed, in the 20th indeed. century. It's like it doesn't ro- quite pay, pay, uh, play the same game as we're all playing. A rival power that somehow may, may undermine the legitimacy of Canada. Absolutely. It undermines the legitimacy of the nation state, uh, and it undermines the potential for Canada. Now, I have to say, I... I, I... <laughs> I had to drop my arms when I read Arthur Lower in your book. Yes. The historian, the venerated historian, Arthur Lower, is identified as anti-Catholic. Can you explain that? Yeah, I, um, there was so much anti-Catholicism in Arthur Lower that I was able to write an entire article on him. <laughs> Um, and his anti-Catholicism. Uh, Arthur Lower, uh, legendary historian. Again, yes. Okay. Just, just all, yes. To tell our, to tell our, our, our listeners, uh, Lower, uh, famous historian, uh, born in 1889, died almost a hundred years later. He died at age 99 in 1988. Uh, born in, in 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 Ontario, studied at the U of T and at Harvard, um, and eventually becomes a, a professor at Queen's University. In 1944, Absolutely. and he'll work there until until the 1960s. I'm sorry, I interrupted you there. That's okay. <laughs> Just to give some background. Uh, I mean, I I think I I'm pretty sure I still read him on my comprehensive exams in the in the 2000s, uh, 2008 or nine. Yes. Uh, and he, he is an, an absolutely essential figure. I think for me, his anti-Catholicism. Uh, is really complicated. Perhaps one of the more complicated. He admires Catholicism a lot uh, in his work. He His most famous statement on this is probably the two ways of life, uh, the primary antithesis of Canadian history. Um, he talks a lot about how Catholicism is to be admired because it helped preserve French-Canadian culture and a French-Canadian way of life. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I think that Lower saw this as such a positive was it because it preserved a homogenous in his mind, a homogenous way of life and a homogenous national identity, something which he bemoaned as lacking in English Canada. And it becomes particularly aggressive with that in his later years. Um, on the other hand, his, his admiration of Catholicism, and this happens quite a bit, was quite patronizing. Um, I think it's more of a reflection of his ambivalence towards what he viewed as uh, the consumerism and materialism of contemporary Western society, that Anglo-Protestants had essentially sold out um, any deeper meaning to their lives in 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 pursuit of what he called the standard of living, which he really hated that idea. Mm. Um, instead, Lower admired that Catholicism had prevented this from being too widespread in French Canada. And this embodies the stereotype at the time that French Canadians were this sort of medieval, backward, quaint peasantry uh, that hadn't been touched by the problems of modernity, that they hadn't been... Um, he had a, um, I think it's a quotation or the title of an article that Lower wrote in the 1930s called Shall, Shall the Shell of Medievalism Crack? Mm. Uh, that is a good way of putting it. That's how he saw Quebec uh, and French Canada in general. He often, in his two, primary, his two ways of life article, he refers to them as a sort of spiritual, primitive peasant people. Um, but that this, and that this was a positive in some ways because they were able to escape consumerism and materialism. But it was a problem because it could also lead to the narrow authoritarianism of fascism and Nazism. And then in the post-war era, he becomes very concerned that Catholicism is becoming is like Soviet communism. 
uh, because of its totalitarian uh, connotations. It's a block. It's a block to his vision of a of a liberal democracy. Absolutely, his um, his one of his great works. He wins the Governor General's Award. He won it twice. Uh, was um, the most greatest stream, I believe it's called. This Sorry, most famous stream. This Ani. most famous stream. Nineteen fifty four. Yeah, and he talks about that constantly. Uh, that you know that this that real Christianity which for him is Protestant, is a Protestant version of Christianity, is the same thing as liberalism, that these are not, that these are not separable. Anyone who separates these is doing it wrong. And for him, Catholicism, he says it in the book, uh, it could have made a choice to open itself up and to basically Protestantize, but instead in the 19th century, it chose to revert back into a shell of totalitarianism and declare things like uh, papal infallibility, a syllabus of errors, ultramontanism, all of these uh, things that he saw as sort of the last straw uh, that, that now condemned the church to forever be an enemy of liberal democracy. Let's leave Arthur Lower aside for a second. How much of this anti-Catholicism is really a veiled attack on French Canadians and Irish immigrants? Yes, um, absolutely a lot, <laughs> to put it simply. Uh, I do think, though, that Catholicism was attacked on its own, on its own face as well. Um, it was a expression of anti-foreign sentiment. It was an expression of the anger and frustration uh, within English Canada, especially during the wars, uh, that they weren't doing their part. But I do think that Catholicism, anti-Catholicism is a bit separate from strictly sort of nativistic or anti-French Canadian uh, sentiment. They're, they're, so in it, they're so tied in this period that mm. it's really hard to separate them. Uh, but there was an aspect of it that was specifically opposed to these groups because of Catholicism. It wasn't just, I think, a secondary category, if you will. Uh, it was sort of simultaneous with, you couldn't understand, I think you couldn't understand anti-French Canadian sentiment without understanding anti-Catholicism. And I don't think you could understand the a lot of the nativism targeted towards Catholic immigrants without understanding anti-Catholicism. Mm. Now, let's look, let's look at it from another perspective. The reality is that Canada has survived this deep hostility towards Catholicism, that the Pact of 1867 that did guarantee minority um, educational rights for uh, Catholics and for Protestants in minority situations did survive, notwithstanding the various attacks on it. Um, there was a limit to this anti-Catholicism, wasn't there? Absolutely. I, I think that, um, as I said before, population realities, uh, mundane realities dictated that. Um, I think you, you, you put it to me before uh, that Canada survived this uh, divide. Uh, I think that's a good way of putting it because educational rights, uh, the Pact of Confederation, these are essential to allowing that to happen. Uh, Canada has simply always had a large Catholic population. Yeah. We've always had to make compromises. And so you have the case of a perhaps unique or at least very unusual case where you had Johnny McDonald as an Orangeman and John Diefenbaker as an Orangeman. Yes. Yet both won many seats in Quebec. Yes, they did. <laughs> and they among did. Catholics, especially Johnny McDonald, that was the bait, one of the bases of his governing uh, strategy. 
So Canada's had Canada had a Catholic prime minister in 1892 and a first French Canadian in 1896. The U.S. has still only had one Catholic president. Uh, Quebec, I think, as with most things, Canadian distinguishes us. Mm-hmm. Uh, any leader who generally wants to keep the company, country together or wanted to get votes in a more cynical way in Quebec and many other ridings throughout the country, not just Quebec, could not be openly anti-Catholic and hope to survive, even if they felt that way deep down. Yeah. And I have so to I point out... It's, it's I, I, not necessarily a tri- triumphalist story, but one of more mundane realities. The reality is that we've had Catholic politicians, leading politicians, for, for, for the last 30 years. I mean, Absolutely. Mr. Clark, Mr. Mulroney, uh, Mr. Uh, of the course, Trudeau's, Trudeau, Chrétien, uh, Turner, uh, the, the, the vast majority of, of, of the leading politicians have been, uh, have been Catholic. It's, it's, it's striking. Now, I want to leave, I want to, there was, there was, there had to be some good things about Catholicism. I mean, after all, Catholics throughout the 19th century were against prohibition. Should that have not endeared them a little bit? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I, I think my book, you know, I hope it's not a a sort of uh, unrelentingly bleak image of Canada. Um, It's not. Uh, absolutely, there was um, lots of partnerships, and uh, and uh, the, you know, Catholic Catholicism was against prohibition, or the Catholic Church was often against prohibition. It was often against things like eugenics, although that's a little more complicated. We're finding now than we thought uh, as historians. Um, and so there, it wasn't just just anti-Catholicism. I think what's what's interesting is to see that, like lots of different versions of prejudice, uh, those those people who who were tolerant, those people who were not prejudiced. Uh, in this way show, I think, a lot to us as historians of why the other people weren't like that. Uh, And they're able to sort of demonstrate that there were exceptions to these rules, if we want to call them that, and that we shouldn't just sort of come to the easy conclusion that, well, everyone at that time was anti-Catholic, so get over it. Or, well, everyone was at at that time was anti-Catholic, so, you know, why bother even studying it? Well, that's a dangerous conclusion, because then we started excusing a lot of things and sort of ignoring a lot of things. Was it possible to be anti-Catholic and still be tolerant? I think so. I think a lot of people um, that that I sort of researched had a lot of anti-Catholic ideas or a lot of sort of misconceptions of Catholicism, uh, but supported things like Catholic school rights, uh, or at least tolerated them, at least, you know, accepted the fact that they were a legal reality mm. uh, and that they had value. Um, I think that people also eventually changed their minds uh, over time. I, as I note in the book, uh, in the during the Depression, F.R. Scott, uh, one of the great legal minds in Canadian history and a poet, uh, he says some pretty anti-Catholic things in the 1930s. It's a very tense decade in Quebec, and he was part of the Anglo-Quebec sort of elite. Um, I think he changes his mind, and by the time World War II comes around, he's writing some pretty uh, open uh, statements about um, how we need to breach this divide between French and English Canada, and if that means working with Catholics, that's what it means. Uh, so it cha- he changed. I think he changed his mind, anyways. Um, so that did happen as well. It's not like once once an anti-Catholic, always an anti-Catholic. Do you think that the quiet revolution in Quebec, the sudden abandonment of Catholicism in Quebec, changed the political grammar in this country? Yes, I think that uh, the quiet revolution was. Uh, I mean, as I mean to say, perhaps a trite statement. It changed a lot of things in Canada, yes. and one of them was the fact that. Um, 
certain ob- observers like our, our friend Arthur Lowe, we were just talking about, but also people like Hugh McLennan started writing uh, articles and, and things about how, uh, you know, this is great because Quebec has escaped its priest-ridden nature. <laughs> so it's sort of a backhanded compliment. Um, what ended up happening, though, I think, and this is maybe subtle, uh, I, I believe it's true, though, that uh, in the post-Quiet Revolution era, or sorry, after the Quiet Revolution starts, what ends up happening is Quebec is still viewed uh, by a lot of English-Canadian public figures and private citizens as somehow distorted, as somehow stunted. Uh, and a lot of Quebecers themselves view that, and they blame it on the church. So it's not just sort of an, an uh, uh, a, um, ascribed identity, it's an avowed identity. Uh, that Quebecers uh, have of themselves to some extent, but there's a lot of there's a lot of un, uh, misunderstood or, or assumptions that Quebec is distorted because of the church, and that yes, they're freeing themselves of that, but maybe they'll never actually free themselves of that, and that there's even some like Eugene Forcey is really, really strong on this that essentially the the, the church's historic historical hold on the people of Quebec have caused them to become this sort of reactionary, nationalistic, harmful force in the Canadian body politic. Mm. Your book, Kevin, ends in the 1990s. Do you think this anti-Catholicism is done? Is it over? I don't think it's done. Um, I think you still see it uh, sometimes. It has definitely changed. Uh, Theological anti-Catholicism, the labeling of the Pope as the Antichrist, I think that this is a small group of fundamentalist churches yeah. uh, and anti-Catholic polemics. You'll find them in things like YouTube videos sometimes, uh, or Chick Tracks, which are these little comic books that are distributed uh, all over the place. You'll see them. There's a lot of anti-Catholicism, sort of intense theological anti-Catholicism there. One of the most interesting things that's happened, and I'm hoping to study this uh, from here on in, is uh, for many conservative evangelicals in Canada and in the United States, the Catholic Church has proven to be an unexpected ally uh, in the fight against what they label the permissive society of the post-1960s, mm. uh, especially over things like abortion rights, uh, feminism, and LGBTQ rights. Uh, when David Mance of the 100 Huntley Street fame died in 2017, I watched some shows commemorating him. One of the first things I saw was a spe- that they showed was a special that um, he had on in the 1970s where he invited a Catholic priest onto his show. I think the unexpected, the unspoken assumption there was that um, this would have been impossible only a few years earlier. Uh, what is more common now is a fascinating hybrid, I would call it, of traditional anti-Catholicism mixed with the issues important to progressives in contemporary society. And this is very complicated, I think. The, the church remains in their minds a barrier to democracy that is perceived as hopelessly trapped in a medieval age as repressive of women, of gay rights, of contraception. Now, this is the reason it's so complicated is because the church is often opposed to contraception, uh, to many gay rights, to abortion, and in some respects, the equality of men and women. Yes. Uh, this is, uh, I think, undeniable. And it has imp- impacted my personal Catholicism significantly and a lot of people that I know. Where it becomes anti-Catholicism, I think, is when it begins to interact with these well-worn tropes and narratives of the past, that the church has been plotting this all along. You'll hear a lot of comparisons of modern Catholicism to the Inquisition. Uh, there's something inherent within Catholicism and Catholics that prevent them from belonging, belonging in a modern democratic society, and that the church should be attacked even with violence uh, because of this. You see it come up again also in the very real uh, sexual abuse crisis that's going on in the church right now and the various cover-ups. 
Um, this for me has become perhaps the single biggest reason that I and a lot of people I know stopped really being a practicing Catholic. Mm. Uh, but I think that becomes any Catholic when the debate moves from beyond discussing the corruption of, the, of an institution demonstrated by covering up for clergy who have committed crime and sin right. and becomes about how this has always been the case and is inherent to the very existence and doctrine of Catholicism itself and is somehow distorted. It's, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating reality of our intellectual and political life, isn't it? Yes, it's, I think so. I think it's uh, an unexplored one, which I hope I explored. Uh, it is uh, something that remains. And as I said, uh, whenever I talk to somebody at a conference or at a book uh, talk or presentation, there's always someone has a story, a personal story, a social history, if you will, of anti-Catholicism. Well, you've done a marvelous job of documenting uh, a, less, a less appealing aspect of our 20th century experience. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kevin. It was a pleasure talking to you. You too. Have a great day. That was Kevin Anderson, the author of Not Quite Us, Anti-Catholic Thought in English Canada Since 1900, published by McGill-Queen's University Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would really help to spread the message, and we'd be very happy about your support. This podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Zuzil. This interview was recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on October 21st, 2019, and it was produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>